Let's return this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. We're beginning with uh, verse 9 and reading through verse 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of the best-known stories that Jesus ever told. It is a foundational story for understanding the gospel. And there is no possible way that I could convey with the same effect that Jesus conveyed this story to his original audience. I cannot convey that to you today precisely because it is so familiar And because Christians have been reading this story for 2,000 years, so we kind of know how it goes. When we hear Jesus talk about two men going up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, we immediately know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. The problem is we don't. We have the wrong good guy and the wrong bad guy. This is why I've titled this message, Surprise. We're familiar with this parable and we're familiar with Jesus' ongoing conflict with the Pharisees. And so we may miss the surprise. We we miss the twist. But Jesus' original audience wouldn't have heard it the way we hear it. They would have heard Jesus begin to tell this story and thought that the good guy is the Pharisee and the bad guy is the tax collector. And this is what we need to remember when we find Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and speaking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were highly respected. They were known and admired for their external righteousness. And Jesus knows that that's how his audience is going to 
view them. They will view the Pharisee as the righteous man and the tax collector as the sinner and thus will assume that the Pharisee is the star of the show. The hero of the story, the good guy, and the tax collector is the bad guy. But the reality, of course, is they've got it upside down and backwards. Jesus does this over and over, doesn't he, in the Gospel of Luke? He inverts what his hearers would normally expect to be the case, and he does that for specific reasons, not just for shock value. That's how comedians operate. That's how a joke functions. You tell a joke, and then there's a punchline, and the punchline is what you don't expect. That's what's supposed to make it funny. Jesus isn't doing this for entertainment. This would have been shocking, to be sure, for the original audience to hear, but he does it for specific spiritual reasons. And in this passage, you'll see Jesus zero in like a laser beam on two usually important truths and realities that he wants to drive home to the people who are listening to the story. And he will not leave you wondering what those realities are. He points them out at the very beginning. Luke does, certainly, as he tells this story. Luke knows what Jesus is getting at. Luke knows what Jesus' point is. And by the grace of God, I trust that when we leave this place this morning, we will have heard Jesus' voice in this parable. But as we approach it, remember Jesus' original audience is going to assume that the just man, the righteous man, is the Pharisee. The unrighteous man is the tax collector. They would assume the Pharisee is the one who is justified and the tax collector the one who is not. And Jesus is going to tell this story where the, in the reality of it, it's just the other way around. And he's going to tell that story for a reason that is not only important for first century Jews, but for us as well. Jesus tells this shocking story to drive home this usually important truth that God's mercy is the basis upon which we are forgiven and accepted and declared to be just. Not our supposed righteousness. Not even the righteousness that we do by his grace is the basis of his accepting us and pardoning us and forgiving us. And declaring us to be just. The righteousness that comes by God's mercy alone through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Received by faith in him and his finished work. This mercy alone is the basis upon which we are forgiven and accepted and declared just. And Jesus is driving that point home in this story. And he does it by showing two different men and two different prayers. And of course, this is what we want to focus on this morning. Two different men and two different prayers to see two things that Jesus wants us to understand. Now let's see how he does this. Verses 9 and 10 function as an introduction to 
the parable. Verse 9 is Luke's introduction, and then verse 10 is how Jesus gets into the meat of the parable. So there is an introduction to the passage in general, that's what you see in verse 9, and then an uh, an introduction to the parable in particular is what we see in verse 10. Verse 9 says this, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now first, note who Jesus is addressing. He's been addressing the disciples You go back into chapter 17, verse 22, he said to his disciples, verse 18, now he was telling them, who is them? Well, it's still the disciples, but now there's a change. Jesus is addressing someone else now. He's directed his attention to another group entirely. He's now addressing some people. A generic group of people who were around and apparently listening in to what he was telling the disciples. And he's addressing some people who are characterized this way. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now this is very important. One of the primary figures in the parable, as we know, is going to be a Pharisee. And we already know, because we've read the first 17 chapters of the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus and the Pharisees don't always see eye to eye. There's ongoing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we also know, because we've read the first 17 chapters, that Jesus often portrays the Pharisees as those who exhibit just this characteristic They are self-righteous. And so we might expect to find that Jesus is speaking specifically to the Pharisees when he tells this parable. But that's not the case. Luke's description of Jesus' audience is more broad and more general. We're told that he's speaking to some people. Now why is that important? It's important because it tells us that self-righteousness is not just an issue for the Pharisees. Not in the first century, certainly not today. Self-righteousness is an issue for some people. For people in general. Now, in verse 10, we begin to hear the words of Christ. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Now, as we see in so many of Jesus' parables, he's not just making this up out of whole cloth. He's just not inventing things. He's dealing with specific situations that his listeners would be familiar with. They would know what Jesus is talking about here. It's just not people randomly going up to the temple to pray. 
When he speaks in verse 10 of two men going to the temple to pray, he's making a reference to something that was very common and which all of his hearers would understand and with which they would be familiar. You see, when the temple was still standing and operating normally, twice a day, the large courts of the Jerusalem temple would be devoted to public prayers. You think about what you've seen as you've watched video of people at the Wailing Wall. And that gives you an idea of the situation. During the rest of the day, individual worshipers would be bringing their sacrifices to the temple. But at these designated times, if someone chose to, they would come into the temple specifically to pray. Now understand, these were kind of private public prayers. They'd be standing there in public, but they're not leading anyone in prayer. They're coming for themselves. And although they might be praying audibly, they'd be praying to themselves. And that, of course, comes out in this this passage. The prayers were just between them and God. And, of course, people had a reason for coming to the temple to pray this way because In their understanding, and it was correct understanding at that point, the temple is where God's people commune with him. It's where God dwelt. If you were a devout Jew and you found yourself in Jerusalem, whether you lived there or whether you were there on business or whether you had come down for the feasts, perhaps you would make your way to the temple at one of these designated times during the day to pray. And so that's the background of Jesus' parable. And everyone listening to him would have understood that's what he's talking about. So understanding that, let's take a look at the Pharisee and his prayer. Verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. To himself. Typically, we think of the Pharisees and we connect them with, you know, what Jesus had said. You know, don't go praying on the street corner so everybody hears you. That wasn't an issue for this guy in this parable. He's praying to himself. He's not concerned with whether or not anyone else hears him. That'll come into play in a moment. But the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. And this is what he was praying. God... I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. The Pharisee is a man who is moral, and he he is a man who is religious, and he is grateful to God for his morality and his religiosity. But when we read this prayer, we immediately hear the self-righteousness which characterizes this man. And that, of course, is exactly what Jesus intends us to perceive. But remember what we said a few moments ago. Jesus understood his audience. And he knew that self-righteousness was not the first thing they would take away from this description. The first thing they would focus on would be quite positive. 
After all, first century Jews were predisposed to admire the Pharisees. He was all about the Torah. He's a Pharisee. He's all about God's word. They would have assumed that he was a man who dealt uprightly in all of his dealings with other people. They would have assumed that he was faithful to his wife and his family. They would have assumed that he was an upstanding man who deserved their respect. Jesus knew that his audience would be predisposed to say, that is a good man. So when he starts praying, their first reaction would not be to recoil in horror at this self-righteous hypocrite, but to actually admire him and to pick out those things that Jesus was saying in his prayer which are to be admired. The first thing they would have noticed is his morality, and they would have admired him for that. You see that in verse 11. I am not like other people. What other people? Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. He's identifying himself as a moral man. He doesn't rip people off in business. He doesn't cheat on his taxes. He doesn't cheat on his wife. And he hasn't betrayed his country like this tax collector who was working for the occupying Romans. More more than likely also skimming a little bit off the top. So he's saying, I'm a moral man. And Jesus' listeners would have said, what a great guy. And then he says, I'm not only a moral man, I'm a religious man. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Now, the Pharisees didn't just fast on special occasions on the Jewish calendar. They fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and their fasts were much more dramatic than the fasts of other people in Israel. They would not even drink water when they were fasting. Which is a feat when you're in Israel, where it's hot. In addition to that, they had gone through the Torah, and they had discovered every tithe listed in the Torah, and they had added them all up. And do you know how much of their income they gave? They gave over 20% of their income to the Lord. Now, what pastor wouldn't want someone like that in his congregation? He doesn't cheat on his taxes. He has an honorable reputation in business, doesn't cheat on his wife, and he gives over 20% of his income to the Lord's work. There's one more thing they would have noticed and admired. They would have noticed that he not only considers himself a moral man and a religious man, but he also gives credit to God. Notice how he prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, understand what he's not saying. He's not saying, God, you saved me because I'm good. 
He's not saying that his salvation is on the basis of works, but he is giving credit to God for his morality and his religiosity. We know that Pharisees and rabbis in Jesus' time prayed like this because we have other prayers that are very similar to this. Jesus, again, is filling his parables with reality. This is how Pharisees prayed. Jesus isn't just making this up. They made it a point of piety to thank God for their morality. They gave God credit that they were moral people. They gave God credit that they were religious people. They did just what Jesus is describing here. They prayed, I thank you, Lord, that you made me a moral man. You made me a religious man. The credit goes to you, Lord. But I want you to notice a couple of things that are entirely missing from the prayer. This is a good thing to do when you're reading scripture, by the way. Don't just ask about what's there. Notice what's not there. And ask why. And the first thing that we notice is that there is no sense of sin or need. By the end of the story, Jesus wants that to be pounding in your brain. There is not the slightest sense that this man has anything that he needs to be forgiven for. His thanks to God is all about what a great guy he is. There's no sense of need. Now you'll remember that another elder, another Young man, another Pharisee, a lawyer, came to Jesus once. And Jesus told him in answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, if you kept all the commandments. The man said, from my youth. Instead of getting into an argument about him, showing him the foolishness of that statement, showing him his self-delusion, Jesus just went along with it, said, okay, then let me tell you what you still lack. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, the first thing he was actually doing is he was showing the man that he really hadn't kept all of the commandments. What's the the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's nothing in this world that you can love more than God, serve more than God, worship more than God. And Jesus was putting his finger right on that man's problem. His problem was that he loved money, and Jesus was going to point that out to him. So we already broke the first commandment. And then comes the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's going to be unwilling to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. So he's blowing that one too. And in that, you're seeing the same thing. Yes, he goes away and he's kind of sad about it, but he's not sad enough to do what he needs to do. There isn't that great a sense of need. In fact, the idea of need isn't even present. He still thinks he's kept all the commandments. Like this Pharisee thinks he's okay. 
I'm moral. I'm religious. I don't have any need. I don't need to be forgiven. Secondly, did you, did you notice what is present in this prayer? It's the most obvious thing, I think, as we read through it, and that is this colossal egotism. How many times this, does this guy squeeze the word I into this short prayer? After he thanks God, notice what he says. I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I pay the tithes of all I get. This whole prayer is a celebration of himself. It is not only lacking a need of forgiveness. It is saturated with pride. And those two things are what Jesus is after in this story. The Pharisee's trust is in himself. He's a moral man, he's a religious man, and his conscience is at peace. But the basis of the peace of his conscience rests squarely on the fact that he is a good person. And there is no sense of his need of forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, if that is where you find yourself, you are in a very dangerous place. You will not understand your need for the gospel if you look at yourself and say, I'm a moral, religious person. Even if you thank God for how good you are. That kind of self-righteousness can do nothing but keep you from God, now and for all eternity. And along with that self-righteousness is a pride which expresses itself in condescension and contempt for others. Which is clearly there in his prayer, but we saw it before his prayer. Because as Luke describes the people to whom Jesus is speaking, what does he say? They were people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, there's one, and viewed others with contempt. Those things always go together. And they certainly came together in the Pharisee. Now, contrast the Pharisee with the second man and the second prayer. The tax collector... He is described there in verse 13. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax collector stands far off. And before you even get to his short one-sentence prayer, look at what Jesus says about him. He will not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Now the common stance for prayer in the Old Testament, not exclusively, but commonly, is to lift one's eyes up to heaven with arms upraised. You remember Moses praying for the people of Israel and people holding his arms up as he prayed, as the battle went on. This is exactly how the Pharisee would have been praying. He prays to God with his eyes raised to heaven and his arms outstretched, waiting for God to answer and to bless him. But this tax collector doesn't do that. This tax collector bows his head. He won't even lift his eyes to heaven, we're told. And he beats his breast 
which is an act of penitence. That would have been understood by everyone who was listening as well. And what does he pray? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. One sentence. And I think, since he bothered to make his way to the temple to pray, he was repeating that sentence over and over and over. Now notice two qualities about that prayer. First of all, there's the obvious presence of humility and the presence of a God-focused trust The humility in the sense of need is clearly apparent here. Even before he opens his mouth, his head is down instead of up. He can't even bear to look up to heaven because he knows that he does not deserve heaven's blessing. But he has this great need, and that great need is that he is a sinner, and he needs to be forgiven of his sin and to be declared just before God. But he has... Nothing to bring to God. He can't stand there and say, listen, I'm a moral and religious guy. I'm just as good as the Pharisee. He can't say that. He knows that much about himself. All he can do is to cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He recognizes his need for forgiveness. He identifies himself as a person who must either be the object of God's mercy or he is going to justly be the object of God's punishment. And he begs for mercy, knowing that he has no other recourse. There's nothing else that he can appeal to God with. All he can do is ask for mercy. And that leads to the second thing. Notice that he does not ground his hope for acceptance with God on anything in him. It is all turned around. It is all focused upon God and who he is. Very much should remind us of David's prayer. When David is caught having committed adultery with Bathsheba, having ordered her husband to be killed, and is confronted by Nathan the prophet, And in Psalm 51, he prays for forgiveness. He doesn't say, oh God, forgive me because I'm a moral and righteous man. Oh God, forgive me because I've been faithful to you. His prayer is, be gracious to me, oh God, because of your loving kindness. He appeals to to the character and the attributes of God because there is no appeal from him. That's exactly what the tax collector prays here. Be merciful to me, O God. Not because I'm good. I'm not. I'm a sinner. But be merciful to me because you are a merciful God. The Pharisee was trusting in his own inherent moral 
religious God-enabled righteousness, but he had no sense of sin and need in his prayer, and he had a false sense of trust in himself and in his own righteousness. And in contrast to that, you have this tax collector who is looking away from himself and looking to God. When it comes to the issue of being accepted by God, the Pharisee looks into himself and he, and, 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 and he is satisfied with what he finds. He's satisfied that he is right with God. Whereas the tax collector looks into himself and says, if that is what I am, I'm in trouble. And he realizes that the only hope for him is to look away from himself, outside of himself, to the mercy and the grace of God. And of course, the point that Jesus is making is that nothing that we do is the basis for God's acceptance of us. Jesus and Jesus alone is the basis of God's acceptance of us. Go right back to the beginning of the passage in verse 9. What's the parable about? We're already told. Like the, 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 the whole parable is there in verse 9. It's about some who trust. But what are they trusting in? Not God. Not God's mercy. Not away from themselves. They trust in themselves that they were righteous. And that kind of pride caused them to treat others with contempt. If you think the thing that separates you from other people is that there is some goodness in you and not in them, you will be full of pride and you will be contemptuous and you will be arrogant. But if you think that the only thing that separates you from other people comes from the grace of God and the mercy of God, then it will make you humble. You look at other sinners plunging their own lives into self-destruction and your response will not be, I cannot imagine someone being so depraved as to do that. You'll say, that's me. God, save him. Save her like you did me. There won't be pride and there won't be contempt. There will be sympathy and mercy and a desire that others would be brought to saving faith in Christ. That's what this story is about. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the sinner, went to his house justified. Not made right by what he had done, but declared right simply by the mercy of God. Think back with me to the hymn we sang earlier. It was written by a man named Augustus Toplady. <laughs> it's a good old English name, Toplady. And he was an Anglican minister. And you know what he called that hymn, Rock of Ages? 
His title for that hymn was The Prayer of the Most Sanctified Man Who Ever Lived. Top Lady was asking, how should the godliest person that you have ever met pray? And his answer was, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Looking out, not in. That's what sanctified people do. Because sanctified people understand who they are inside. Sanctified people are like the Apostle Paul, who though he was an apostle, considered himself to be the chief of sinners. They look inside and they know what's there. And they know better than those who do not know God at all. Another portion of that hymn that we sang, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. When he soars to worlds unknown, When his life has ended, his sanctification is complete, he is glorified before the throne of God, he is present in the company of angels, what will his prayer be then? Will it be, I thank you that I am not like other men? I'm moral, I'm religious, I'm just? No. According to Top Lady, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. He begins and he ends the hymn with that same phrase. Let me hide myself in thee. When I am finally in the presence of God, I will still be hiding myself in him. Even in glory, the basis of our acceptance by God will not be found in us. And that is why the gospel is absolutely essential to every one of us. Because it says that Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we could receive blessings that we don't deserve because we have trusted in a merciful God. The basis, the, the ground of our acceptance with God is not found in ourselves Salvation is not like acquiring a merit badge. Salvation is simply recognizing that we have nothing to offer him and trusting solely in him as we cry out, have mercy on me, the sinner. Father, make this true in the lives of not only your people, Father, but those who have never known your grace in Jesus Christ. We who are yours, Father, never get past this great glorious truth. We never get past the gospel. It informs all that we are and all that you desire us to be. Oh, but Father, there is a world that is lost. And there are so many who like the Pharisee. Believe that they are safe. Believe that they are right with you because they are moral or religious people. Father, bring them out of their delusion and open them to the truth. That you may be glorified. That you may receive all honor. 
that all those whom you have chosen from before the foundation of the world would be called to worship you for eternity. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.